Bienvenidos, señoras y señores, to episode 3 of La Yuma Cubana. Today's topic, the Cuban Missile Crisis of October, or La Crisis de Octubre. From the 16th through the 28th of October, there was a confrontation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union concerning the deployment of Soviet ballistic nuclear missiles in Cuba. The year is 1962. Here we go. Some of you may remember in the previous episode, we discussed the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, which happened in April of 1961. And that caused the Kennedy administration a great amount of humiliation. A few months later in June of that same year at the Vienna summit, JFK finally gets to meet with Khrushchev. So a little background information on these two men. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born into a large, wealthy Irish Boston family a happy, privileged childhood and whatnot, smooth with the ladies. 1941, he joined the Navy, served in the Pacific War. 1946, he was elected to Congress and so on. Nikita Khrushchev was born into poverty in the Ukraine. At the age of 15, he became an apprentice engineer and he started to organize workers' militia during the October Revolution, joined the Communist Party and then worked his way up the Soviet hierarchy. Now, there is a rigid dichotomy between that of JFK representing the U.S. and wanting to strengthen capitalism versus Khrushchev, who wanted to destroy it. Now, the meeting didn't end well due to the issue that was happening in Berlin. So they agreed to disagree. And there was some mention of building a wall and blah, blah, blah. And then they went their separate ways. Then in February of 1962 was the Proclamation 3447, which was for the embargo on all trade with Cuba. The day before it is instituted, President Kennedy calls in a Pierre Salinger, his secretary, into his office. And Mr. Salinger asks, how, how may I help you, Mr. President? Well, uh, I need some Cuban cigars. Oh, okay. He's like, how, how many do you need? A thousand. Oh, oh okay. A thousand. He's like, and when, when do you need it by? He's like, tomorrow. Like, oh, um, okay. He's like, that. that's a challenging task, but let me see what I can do. The next day, Mr. Salinger gets into work at 8 a.m. and his office desk phone is already blown up. He walks into the Oval Office and JFK asks him, so how'd you do? He's like, well, Mr. President, uh, did great. We have 1,200 Cuban cigars. Like, fantastic. He opens up his drawer, takes out the decree for the embargo and signs it. In the meanwhile, Papa's got a brand new pig bag. JFK approves a $50 million Operation Mongoose, which is essentially devised to kind of pick up and succeed where that of the Bay of Pigs had failed, to remove the communist Castro regime. It is a multiplicity of plans, which is encompassed by political, psychological, military, sabotage, proposed assassination on the key political figures, i.e. Fidel, Raul, and El Che. They wanted to destabilize the regime and establish internal guerrilla bases. The ultimate attack was to take place in that year, October 1962. With respect to the assassinations, one of the CIA's more promising recruits, in my opinion, was that of Maria Lorenz, a German-born American. Her and Fidel had met when her father, who was the captain of the MS Berlin, had docked into the Havana Harbor in February of 1959, about a month after Fidel took power. So they met almost at the inception of the revolution. She lived there for several months and uh, was his secretary. Due to personal reasons, she left. And then when she did, she was approached by the CIA. And they asked her, you have the greatest access to Fidel. 
if we trained you and we gave you some poisonous pills, would you be willing to put it inside his food? She agreed. She flies back to Havana and meets Fidel in a hotel room. When she enters, he's like, where, you know, where have you been? And she's like, well, I wanted to go back to New York and catch up with friends and family, which was not the truth. He's lying in bed, fully clothed, his eyes closed with a cigar in his mouth. And he asks her, are you here to kill me? And she's shocked and she's like, yes, yes, I am. He reaches over, grabs his 45 off the night table and hands it to him. He says, go ahead, kill me. And she's like, no, she's like, no, no, she's like, can't. She's like, your, your life is not mine to take. And it was very romantically dramatic. They embraced, they got jiggy with it, and then she dipped. As she's storming out of the lobby in tears, the CIA agents are thinking, this broad just killed Fidel. But no, no, it didn't happen. The following are not, not so much attempts to assassinate, but rather just to kind of mess with, with Fidel. Um, explosive cigars. They uh, were going to put powder in his shoe to make his beard and all his hair fall out so he would be ridiculed. This was interesting. Lace his cigar with LSD to make him hallucinate. I guess they were going to play a Grateful Dead soundtrack in the background as he was giving his televised speech. As far as sabotage, it was a little bit more serious. They blew up large oil refineries. Uh, Internal anti-Castro groups were trained to disrupt the peace in the economy uh, by blowing up storefronts. They burned the sugarcane fields, which was Cuba's number one main export. Now, I'm going to need all you cat lovers to put some earmuffs on. La, 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 la. One of the men were explaining that an efficient way to burn sugarcane fields is by taking a regular household cat and you tie its tail with a wire that's attached to a sack. And you impregnate this sack with alcohol or oil and kerosene. You light it up and you turn it loose. The cat will eventually become tired and stop running. And that's when the fire starts. And then eventually the cat will start running again and then stop again. And then another fire will start and so on and so forth. So he claims that with one cat, you can get upwards to two to three kilometers of damage in the field. In the spring and summer of 1962, U.S. intelligence reports indicate an expanded arms shipment from the Soviet Union to Cuba. Somebody asked, you don't think Khrushchev is sending ballistic missiles to Cuba, do you? Nah, that's silly. Around the same time, the intelligence of the Soviet Union, as well as their Cuban contacts, were saying an invasion is on the horizon. In May, during a visit to Bulgaria, one question kept circling in Khrushchev's mind. How can Cuba be protected? And remember, this is the new age of nuclear warfare. This is the 60s. Now, there was some controversy with what was the primary objective. Was it Berlin or was it to establish parity? Because at this time, The U.S. had nuclear missiles on the other side of the Soviet Union border in Turkey. They had missiles in Italy as well and Eastern Europe. The ratio, just to give you an idea, was 17 to 1 in favor of the U.S. Khrushchev would invite his U.S. journalist friends over to his country house in Mother Russia. These were known as dachas. So they would set up a table outside to dine and Khrushchev would give his guests a pair of binoculars and ask them to look out into the horizon and tell them what they see. They would look and they'd say, I don't see anything. So he would take the binoculars and he would look himself and he would be like, ah, yes, I see, I see them. And they'd be like, what? Like in total suspense, like what, what do you see? And he'd be like, I see missiles pointing at my dacha. (laughs) Of course, this was a, this was a humoristic way of, of going about it, but you could tell that it bothered him. And then the third reason being that to protect Cuba from being invaded again. 
the Bay of Pigs was a real attack, and even though it was not successful, the next time the U.S. would be coming unambiguously and with full force. Cuba was not only just an important ally to the Soviet Union, they were a beloved and an admired one as well. They were the first socialist nation in Latin America who came to socialism on their own accord. Thus, it was seen as genuine. The Soviet Union nostalgically saw their own revolutionary youth in Cuba. So before proceeding, Khrushchev sought out the advice of his right-hand man, Anastas Migoyang, who replied, um, no, no, I, I, I put that under the no bueno category of ideas. First of all, Castro's not going to go for it. And second of all, and this was very prophetic, he said, they're going to be hard to hide. All Cuba wanted was a military pact. They didn't want these missiles. It wasn't their idea. Khrushchev ordered the Soviet Union ambassador of Cuba to pitch this added bonus of nuclear missiles to the deal. To which Fidel replied, it's an interesting idea. Jace. So the ambassador had to be very careful with how he framed this proposition. He assured Fidel that it was not to defend the Cuban revolution. No, 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 no. This was to strengthen the position of the socialist camp. This was to serve as a shield against American imperialism. This was music to Fidel's ears. So based on these motives, Cuba saw it as their duty to comply. Fidel would explain in later years, they never feared the consequences of what these missiles would bring if they were discovered. They were more concerned with tarnishing the reputation and the image of the revolution itself. Despite his doubts, he agreed. But before he did that, he asked, is there any way that we can assemble this and do it out in public? And Khrushchev's like, oh, you know, let, let me think about that. Mm, yes, no, mm -mm, no, no, we can't. Operation Adadir was in full effect. The first ship to make a delivery of nuclear missiles were told that they were going to Siberia. And since there was no road access, they would have to go via sea. They crossed the Black Sea, they went through the Mediterranean, and then once they reached the Atlantic, they were like, wah, 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 and they realized that they were not going to Siberia. They docked on the Havana Harbor, and they started to unload. These guys brought skis, winter coats, boots, those cool little fur hats that they use. Oh yeah, and nuclear missile equipment. So los cubanos were like, eh, que cosa esto, chico? Like why, like, why would you bring this winter gear to a Caribbean island? Over the summer of 1962, it was estimated that around 40,000 Russian soldiers, technicians, and engineers were brought over to Cuba. Some posed as tourists, whereas others posed as agricultural specialists. There was a total of 184 trips, with the proximity being around 7,000 miles or 10,000 kilometers. On some of these ships, the men were not allowed to go up on the deck during the daylight hours. And so in the hot and steamy conditions, some of them ended up dying. And they were, quote-unquote, buried at sea, which to me means they were thrown overboard and made into shark food. So you had these blue-eyed, blonde-haired guys that were all wearing these checkered shirts, and they were trying so hard not to be noticed, but they all stuck out like sore thumbs. And, you know, not to say, I have seen red-headed, freckled guanasa proper, right? But these guys were, you know, there were 40,000 of them. So I saw the footage of when the Soviets arrived to Cuba, and they were given a warm welcome. Cubans were applauding, giving them flowers, cheering them on, patting them on the back. I mean, even the Soviet general said, they treated us like brothers. It was comical the way that these nuclear missiles were being transported through the barrio or through the neighborhoods. The local Cubans were just chillaxing on their front porch, maybe having a cafecito. And then all of a sudden you see this big ass missile drive by. The containers were shorter than that of the missiles. And so they stuck out a little bit. Be very, very quiet. 
I'm building nuclear warheads. <laughs> In the meanwhile, the U.S. military training intensifies. There is a drill attack on the imaginary dictator, Ortsak. Ortsak must be defeated! Which was Castro spelled backwards. Cuba was also conducting its own large mobilization of its troops. October 14th. A U-2 spy plane captures surveillance photos, which reveals these canvas-covered objects that are greater than 60 feet. The next day, the CIA photo intelligence confirms that they are indeed missiles. The team waited. They wanted to give the president one night's good rest before they let him know. Just to put it into perspective, one nuclear warhead was the equivalency of 20 times the strength of what was dropped on Hiroshima. It was estimated that the long-range missiles could reach as far west as Los Angeles, as far east as Washington, parts of Brazil and South America. We're talking the majority of the Western Hemisphere would be incinerated. JFK puts together the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, or EXCON. On the 18th, there was a prearranged meeting between President Kennedy and the Soviet Foreign Minister, Andrei Gromeko, who assured the president that the only weapons in Cuba were solely defensive ones. They were not offensive. After the meeting concluded, JFK said, that lying bastard. The Joint Chief of Staff, as well as the advisors, were divided during their deliberation between the hawks and then doves, and then maybe a percentage that were just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and didn't know what the hell was going on. So you had these World War II viejo veterans. We talk about, attack Cuba! It's like, dude, we just did that. It's called the Bay of Pigs. So JFK wanted to calculate and put every single option on the table. Perhaps he was a little bit gun-shy after the Bay of Pigs. And he wanted to make sure that all pros and cons for each option was weighed out. At this time... They didn't realize that had they invaded, that they would have been met with a nuclear response. So the conjectures about the readiness of these missiles were premature. JFK demonstrated tremendous forbearance under these pressures that people were giving him to attack. During this week of deliberation, time worked on the side of rationality. On October 22nd, President Kennedy spills the beans and announces to the public about the crisis and that a naval blockade, no, sorry, that a naval quarantine, because blockade is a war term, tomato, tomato, same, same difference, 300 Navy ships did a perimeter around Cuba to deter any further shipments from the Soviet Union with these nuclear missiles. However, it didn't do a lot for the missiles that were already on the island. The U.S. citizens responded by protesting. They were in absolute panic, frenzy shopping for water, food, supplies. This one lady said, I'm just going to charge everything because... Nobody's going to be around to claim it anyways. Touche, madam. Touche. So Khrushchev calls BS and he says that what Kennedy's doing is a violation of international law. And indeed it is. However, the U.S. did it regardless. Some of the ships turned around and some of them proceeded forward and were inspected. The 26th of October, the Armageddon letter that was composed by Fidel and sent to Khrushchev saying, if Cuba is invaded, I want you to go ahead and release the whole nuclear arsenal on the targets. Even the Soviets were flabbergasted. And then Khrushchev knew at this point that there was a sense of urgency, that, that this was getting out of hand. Kennedy had called his bluff. Now, Khrushchev, at this point, let Kennedy know, I will remove the missiles from Cuba if you promise not to invade them. And then the next day, like some addendum, he said, postscript, please remove the missiles from Turkey. Now, these are reasonable terms. The next day, Kennedy agrees not to invade Cuba if the missiles are taken out and inspection by the UN is allowed. The second part, the removal of the Jupiter missiles, which were nearing end of life anyways, that was going to be done regardless, and that was done on the down low. And around the same time, there's a nuclear-armed Soviet submarine that is submerged too deep for radio contact and is hit by a depth charge by a U.S. ship 
signaling it to come up. Soviet officers in the submarine thought that the war had already started and they were ready to launch their nuclear torpedo. However, before they could do that, they needed a unanimous vote by all three officers. Only two said yes. Also, there was an American U-2 plane that was piloted by a Major Rudolph Anderson that was shot down over Cuba. In the midst of all these well-intended negotiations between Kennedy and Khrushchev, what we have to understand is that neither Castro nor the Soviet Union soldiers that were in Cuba were abreast of what was happening. They weren't involved in the negotiations. They didn't need to sign off on anything. They, they weren't included or consulted. It wasn't until the next day, the 28th, that Fidel learns about these back-channel negotiations between Khrushchev and Kennedy. He felt that it was a betrayal. Cuba's not a bargaining chip. He's like, mira, Khrushchev, no sea tan mari, beep. Most sources at this point concluded and said that it was the end, that the crisis was over, and everybody lived happily ever after. The crisis was far from over. Do you guys really think that after... All of this, the introduction of the missiles and all these Soviets into the island, the, the tension of being invaded at any moment, that at the end of all this, that Fidel is just going to say, oh, you, you want these missiles back? The, these missiles right here? Por supuesto, Khrushchev. Uh, no, 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 no. Había un tremendo problema, okay? Havana, we have a problem. Yeah, yeah, we most certainly do. Cuba was prepared to die valiantly in nuclear flames. And then... Fidel's like, now you're going to take away these missiles? For what? For the word of the U.S. that they're not going to invade us? Which is incongruent to past actions. Khrushchev sends in Anastas Mikoyan. And Anastas brings his son. This is not like his first visit in February of 1960, in which he was wearing the straw hat and sipping on Bacardi rum and living la vida loca. These were far graver and darker circumstances in November of 1962. He arrived in Cuba with three tasks. Number one negotiate the withdrawals of the nuclear missiles. Number two, persuade to allow inspection. And number three, to keep Cuba as an ally. I laugh because Fidel would later refer to this as Mission Imposible. Dun, 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 Mission Impossible. About a week after Anastas arrives in Cuba, his wife of 43 years passes away. His son leaves the next day to attend the funeral, but he himself cannot go bury his wife. These negotiations need to be finished. Now, as you can imagine, sitting in a round-robin fashion with Fidel, Raul, and Che, that these conversations were very intense, and I'm sure verbal punches were thrown. He had to go so far as to come up with a white lie and tell them that there is this unpublished law that states that the Soviet Union cannot send missiles outside of the country. So Fidel responds, What a pity, this law. When do you think you're going to repel it? And so it was this kind of like back and forth banter of dialogue between these men, which interestingly enough, this white lie ended up becoming the president's. Fidel just simply did not want to give in into the demands of the U.S. And even after he agreed to let go of the missiles that the U.S. knew about, he asked if he can keep that of which was unaccounted for. And Khrushchev, in his wisdom, that knew Fidel was full of this revolutionary zeal, and he was just as hot-headed as he was, that was all the more reason to take everything out. Then the following summer in 1963 to patch things up, Fidel went to the Soviet Union to visit and he was given the most extravagant welcome of any statesman before him. I mean, we're talking parades, children giving him flowers, the vodka rained down, he was showered with gifts. I mean, he, he got a baby bear, y'all. I'm not talking about like a Build-A-Bear stuffed animal. No, no, no. The, the real deal baby bear. He was given the hero of the Soviet Union, which is the highest decoration that can be bestowed. An unforeseen result of this whole situation was that 
Kennedy and Khrushchev no longer looked at each other as symbols of capitalism or communism. I think for the first time ever, they saw each other as human, which was a parable for them. Even they themselves were astonished that two people could live on polar opposite ends of the earth and have the capacity to cause the destruction of civilization as you and I know it. Not that I was born in the 60s, but my mama was. And so that means if she wasn't around, I wasn't around, and you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And to think that their actions and their decisions were based on some part speculation, hearsay, bluff. The longer that they took to come to an agreement on this negotiation, the wider the window became of a trigger happening. You guys know how it is with email and texting. There's multiple people on a thread and there's one typo or somebody misconstrues something somebody wrote and, and it's good because it's all very subjective. Th these are all very low level tasks, but these men were trying to negotiate nuclear warfare through letters and telegrams that had a huge delay in being delivered. And so after this, the hotline for hotheads was instituted, which was a direct land connection between the Soviet Union and the White House for future reference if they should ever want to have a chat. I would be willing to bet a dollar that if Khrushchev and Kennedy had the opportunity to talk amongst themselves, just them, that they would have reached an understanding and an agreement much sooner than these 13 days. So I'm glad we're all still here. And uh, this concludes episode three, the missile crisis of October or la crisis de octubre. This has been a fascinating topic for me personally. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Until next time, take care. Cuídate. Ciao.